To state the obvious, change is hard. And I was reminded of that in spades as I reviewed a lot of the literature and discussion about residency training in the U.S. covering much of the past decade. But for all the debate over how much sleep a new physician really needs before someone gets hurt or care is compromised, and the ink spilled discussing first one set and now a second set of guidelines putting limits on work hours, it turns out that change is also possible. And we probably don't talk about that nearly enough. What does a residency program look like that runs on sleep as well as taking good care of patients? That's the purpose of this edition of WIHI, and we're thrilled you've tuned in. So welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also for your later listening and convenience, so tell all your colleagues, as a downloadable file via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. It's rough going being in the midst of a major redesign of a part of medical training that has a long-storied history. Residency has has for many been thought of as a rite of passage, a proving ground, if you will, hence some of the grueling hours and pace. But that hasn't always allowed better models to emerge, models that aren't just needed to comply with accreditation rules, but models that actually prepare residents to practice healthcare that's safer, more team-based, patient-centered, and coordinated. It's my pleasure to now introduce our guests. Again, more detailed bios are on the WIHI webpages, but in brief. Christopher Landrigan is Associate Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and a practicing pediatric hospitalist. He was a founding member of the Harvard Work Hours Health and Safety Group and has done a lot of research on the relationship between provider sleep deprivation, schedule redesign, and patient safety. Welcome, Chris. Thanks very much, Matt. All right, this is my way to make sure everyone is awake and alert with us. We call this program Alert to Change. Okay, well, Chris Landrigan led me to both Jim Whiting and David Sweet. Jim Whiting is the Director of Surgical Education and oversees the Surgical Residency Program at Maine Medical Center in Portland, Maine. Maine. He's also the Surgical Director of the Maine Transplant Program. Welcome, Jim. I don't know if Jim got our uh, snow. We got a foot here in the Boston area. I'm not sure if Maine uh, took part in this or not. No, we only got a few inches. Oh, okay. That's what happens sometimes with these, uh, the way patterns are. David Sweet, whom I'm so tempted to refer to as Sweet 16, and for reasons that I'm going to explain in just a moment, forgive me, David, he's the program director of the SUMA Health System, Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine Internal Medicine. Medicine program that has quite an acronym. David helped design and implement a really significant change with residency training at SUMA. Welcome, David. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Terrific. And last but never least, Dr. Donald Goldman is with us. Don is a senior vice president at IHI. He oversees fellowship training, is an infectious disease specialist, works with our strategic partners, and is a clinical staff member at Children's Hospital. This and much more. Welcome, Don. Hello. All right. So as Jesse said, my guests and I are going to talk for about 20, 25 minutes, and then we're going to open up to your questions and comments. And I'm going to start 
start off with Chris Landrigan because um, I know many times people tell me, get cut to the chase, Madge, not so much background context, don't set to spend too much time setting the scene. But I do want to make sure that we're at least a little up to speed together. So I've asked Chris to briefly, he found this a bit daunting, remind us why we've spent a good chunk of the last decade talking about and debating as well as enacting new rules that are putting some parameters and new ideas behind medical residency and work hours. So, Chris, uh, that's to you. Thanks. Okay, thanks very much, Matt. And I I promised I would keep it brief, so I will (laughs) try to do my best. Um, So, just as a starting point, I mean, I think it's important to remember that the context in which we're talking about residency work hours now really has as much to do with patient safety as anything else, where for more than a decade now, we've known that we've had a major patient safety problem in hospitals, and there are lots of causes of this, but I think for, for many years now, some of the work hours that residents have traditionally traditionally done have been suspected as at least one potential cause of this problem. And as recent work, both from uh, IHI that I was involved in, as well as from the Office of the Inspector General of the U.S., has demonstrated that it does not appear that the patient safety problem is shrinking in, in the state's um, currently, And so we really do have, I think, some, some additional fundamental steps that we need to take um, across the whole spectrum of patient safety issues if we're going to change things. Now, specifically with respect to resident work hours, there are more than 30 years of data now that have looked at the effects of sleep deprivation and circadian misalignment on human performance. And while these studies vary in methodology and in the population studies and so forth, it is, it is abundantly clear from to anybody, I think, who's reviewed this literature, that there are demonstrated effects of sleep deprivation on human performance. And in fact, these effects can be pretty profound. We know, for example, that being awake for 24 hours uh, in a row conveys decrements in performance that consistently, both in, in medical and in non-medical populations, has been shown to replicate the effects of about a blood alcohol level of 0.01. And so as a consequence, I think there has been lots of interest in trying to understand what the effects of reducing resident work hours might be, and in particular, eliminating uh, hazardous shifts of more than, let's say, 16 hours or so. Um, there have been a, a series of meta-analyses and systematic reviews that have looked at studies that have, have evaluated the effect of sleep deprivation on performance over time. And, and again, these have consistently shown that working for more than about 16 hours in a row does lead to some deterioration in performance. And I think the big question in the medical education community has been, okay, well, it's one thing to say that long work hours affect human performance to some degree and that things change in the laboratory setting, but do these really lead to performance in the real world as well? And so what my group set out to do about eight or ten years ago is to look at this question, both by um, conducting large nationwide epidemiologic surveys as well as randomized controlled trials. And to cut to the chase, I mean, the bottom line was that what we found in the medical population, the resident population in particular, really focused primarily on interns, but also we have some data looking at more senior residents as well. The bottom line is that is that the same times of, of findings that seem to hold true in the lab hold true in the real world, too, where... Uh, doctors who are working for more than about 16 or 18 hours in a row suddenly have a, a much increased risk of sticking themselves with needles or scalpels, of having motor vehicle crashes on the post-call drive home from work, and of making more serious errors in the care of their patients, which it would appear um, from some preliminary data um, really do translate into harm to those patients as well, although I think we still need larger studies to document exactly um, how, that, how that plays out. Um, since our initial um, work, there have probably been about um, 10 or 12 studies now that have attempted to look at the same issue in various ways, where they have either um, drastically reduced or eliminated altogether the 
um, the frequency with which residents work shifts of greater than 16 hours. And for the most part, these studies have, have found the same thing, that when, when this is done, it does appear to lead to safer care. But that said, I think there are a lot of very appropriate concerns about, you know, how do you do this in a way that doesn't lead to an exacerbation of uh, problems with handoffs, which we also know are a problem for patient safety and for other reasons. And, and also importantly, how do we do this in a way that's going to preserve or ideally even enhance the, the excellent uh, medical education that residents in this country have gotten for a long time. And so I think, you know, what we'll talk about today is, is how do you balance these things. On the one hand, we know that there's a need to reduce hours um, physiologically in order to reduce fatigue-related errors in hospitals, but we need to do it in a way that doesn't lead to handoff errors and in a way that makes sure that we optimize education. And with that, I'll stop. Wow, that was really good. Boy, <laughs> you can tell an experienced presenter uh, uh, trying to fit the format here of WIHI. Thanks, Chris Landrigan. And we are sort of moving through, if you're logged on, uh, we're moving through a few, some slides that just sort of remind us of the key uh, points uh, with the new ACGME rules that will go into effect this year uh, on work hours. And if you're logged on to the computer, you can actually download those slides. Uh, when we finish with the program today, you'll be offered that option. All right, so David Sweet, I'm going to turn to you next. Uh, now, the first set of rules changes in 2003, as most of us know, did not, did not go down easily at residency programs, but it did prompt some programs to seize the reins, and SUMA Health System is one of those programs. So I've asked David also briefly to describe what has happened at SUMA, and that's uh, where you'll find out why I refer to him as Sweet 16. David, you're on. David Sweet. Thank you, Matt. Now, I'll give you a little bit of background about SUMA first, then talk about some of our changes. We're a large community health system in Akron, Ohio, and a major affiliate of the Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine, which, by the way, has no traditional university hospital. Our central campus has 11 residency programs, and we have two internal medicine subspecialty fellowships. Our main hospital has 570 beds, 100 to 120 of which are occupied by medicine residency patients at any given time. Our residence teams see approximately 10 new general medicine patients, eight new MICU patients, and three new coronary care patients every day. The residents don't see all new admissions to the hospital. We currently have 44 categorical medicine residents, seven preliminaries, 10 transitionals, and seven rotators from other departments. In 2003, we probably looked very similar to most other programs in the country. But during that first year, we saw that there were some areas where our program had some problems with compliance and some instances in which the new system wasn't optimal. We wanted to comply with the standards and we were also aware of some of the evidence that Chris has been citing. So we set about to make some changes. We did not have a grand plan to move to 16 hours, so that's where we ended up. We first looked at resident workflow, identified areas of difficulty, and made structural changes in those areas in order to make them look similar to those where patient care, resident education, and compliance with the ACGME standards looked like it was working well. We ended up with the 16-hour call system, and we've been using it since July 06. There were three major types of changes that we put in. The three areas were our general medicine admitting and clinic coordination, night float for most of our rapid response and general medicine cross-cover call, and night shifts for critical care. And I believe Madge is going to post some slides later from us explaining some of the changes we made. 
but I'll walk through some of the changes we made in general medicine here. Historically, we had, we've had two seniors and two grad ones on each of our four general medicine teams. Some teams would have a third senior and a third grad one. The teams admit every fourth day, almost admitting. We initially noticed that there were problems with compliance primarily when the overnight admitting resident, when their buddy was in clinic the following afternoon. You think for a moment, imagine that you and I are both seniors on one team and you were on call last night. It's almost one o'clock in the afternoon and one of our patients isn't stable. I have to be in clinic at one o'clock. There's a cross-cover senior trying to back up our grad ones but it's very unlikely that you'll leave and go home at one o'clock and leave our grad ones alone with an unstable patient. That's where our problem was. So our first solution was to reassign clinic away from the post-admitting day for all team members, and we did that in 0405. That resulted in near complete elimination of violations of the 30-hour rule on our general medicine teams, but we still were using 30-hour shifts. Now the residents needed to move their clinic if they were in clinic on the post-call day. Whenever they moved their clinic, they always, always moved it to their admitting day. That resulted sometimes in the team, the admitting team, having only one senior and one grad one on the wards on the admitting day. It was a different senior in grad one in the afternoon than in the morning, but there was still just one. The teams functioned well during that time so we said, look, we can get by with a 24-hour maximum and, and instilled that in the system in 0506 by having one senior and one grad one on the admitting teams come in in the morning of the admitting day and the second senior and grad one come in in the evening. And we were nonspecific as to the time. What we saw then was that often, as most of you who are listening would see at a noon conference, the overnight residents were not off during the noon conference. And then the overnight admitting residents usually left around 1.30, far before 24 hours. Well, in 2005, the ACGME put in place the Educational Innovation Project sponsored by the RRC Internal Medicine. They put out a request for programs to apply. The entry requirements included programs needing to implement functional system-wide innovations to improve patient care and resident education. As part of our application, we specified that we would go to a 16-hour call maximum. Remember in 0506, we were 24 hours. To reach the target, we said that we would move our admitting residents to the point of coming in in the evening at 6.30 instead of leaving it unspecified. And we told our faculty that they would have to round with the post-admitting team at 8.30 in the morning instead of the usual 10 o'clock. That would result in the overnight admitting residents leaving approximately 10.30, so after 16 hours on duty. The redesign didn't change the way in which we assigned patients to our general medicine teams. Same patients would still come, on, come into them, it's just they were at a, different, at a different time. And we were able to do that by moving the, the clinic from the admitting day to the essentially day three and day four of our cycle. We've used the 16-hour call system on general medicine since we entered the EIP in 2006 and we're still doing it. So that's my little brief description of SUMA. 
All right. David, thank you very much. And uh, David, uh, I really, it's it's daunting. And there is a really nice uh, slide deck uh, that David has that we're just now posting in the chat. It's uh, We've got a link to it on IHI.org. Again, this is something that we'll post to our resources section. They were highly detailed. And because we don't have enough time on WIHI to really do PowerPoint-driven presentations, um, I invite you to take a peek at those slides. You can clearly go to the link now if you'd like, but also download them. And, you know, if you listened again, I think, to this recording, um, I'm sure they'd make a lot of sense. So those David has much more to say, which we're going to get into, which are sort of uh, some issues around successes, the continuity, uh, handoffs, um, and <laughs> some of the things having to do with lining things up with um, uh, education and sort of key ingredients for embracing change, which we're going to get into, I think, when uh, we hear from Jim and, and invite uh, Don Goldman in and Chris back. So, again, thanks, David of Summa Health System. This is WIHI. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, and we're talking about scheduling innovations and other kinds of innovations with residency training. So, Jim Whiting has written that an entire new generation of residents is starting to get the hang of work hour limits and improvements in supervision, handoffs, etc. And I can't think of any place where this might matter more than surgery. So, Jim, your task, if you choose to accept it, is to describe Maine Medical Center's surgical residency program and what changes you've worked on implementing. Jim. Uh, in five minutes or less. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, um, but before before I start, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer. If, if anyone is hoping to hear how we've completely eliminated work hours as an issue in surgical residencies, I'm afraid they're going to be a little disappointed. Um, it still is an issue. We still do have some violations that crop up, and I certainly still do have some attendings who grumble, make snide remarks, uh, and generally send you know nonverbal messages that they don't agree with the whole concept. They don't, they don't do it in front of me anymore, but but I'm sure it still happens. Um, and the reason I think this is still happening is it's not because we haven't been consistent. We, we have, and it isn't because leadership hasn't backed it up. They have backed it up, and I, and I don't think it's because we haven't put enough energy into educating uh, residents and attendings on the problems associated with sleep deprivation. We've done that, too. The, the reason, at least in my opinion, at this is, is that this issue is as much a, a cultural issue as anything. You know, medicine in general, and surgery in particular, is a relatively rigid, hierarchical culture. And, you know, we have really celebrated the characteristics of endurance. Um, along with that, some good things. We've also celebrated the characteristics of accountability and ownership. And, in fact, we've, we've celebrated them and even elevated them uh, above, I think, a number of other important characteristics to a physician, you know, such as, uh, you know, the ability to work collaboratively and, and compassion. But like any culture change, you know, this thing takes time. It, it's difficult, and it really can't be affected just by a report coming down from a blue-ribbon panel, even if that panel is the IOM. The other point I'd like to make is that along with all uh, with the all the awful things um, that go along with uh, work hour these these working long shifts and 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 working uh, you know long grueling shifts the 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 fall off in, in productivity the the dehumanizing effects the accidents all of the things that that Chris has you know worked with others to to elucidate over the last eight years there are a couple of good traits that these work shifts inculcate. And, and frankly, we haven't been tremendously creative 
and we haven't been we haven't risen to the challenge of finding alternate ways to inculcate these values the the, the ownership and um, the accountability and and the, probably the biggest most difficult thing I face as a program director and we all face is, as people training residents is how do you teach people that medicine isn't shift work even though you're necessarily going to be working shifts so that's my disclaimer um, <laughs> What we really do is no incredible leap, um, and and it's it's uh, it's a pretty easy prescription. You know, before any schedule changes, you know, the first thing we did we do and 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 did was to educate the residents about why this is important. You have to have people who understand why they're doing it, um, and you can spend a lot of time talking about falls of performance and accidents, but the bottom line is it's about the patient. Um, none of us as patients would want to be operated on by someone who is dog tired. Uh, you know, secondly, we worked very hard to establish a trust with the residents that you can report violations and there won't be reprisal. There won't be subtle reprisals. There won't be comments about you must not be very efficient because you have all these work hour violations. Um, the residents have to know that while violations might be tolerated, dishonesty won't and that we're going to work honestly at trying to correct these things. They have to report them honestly. And, and if you're not doing that, then you're not going to make any progress um, at all. Um, you know, thirdly, we, we approach, um, we, we try to address some of the issues that, that work hours bring up, like handoffs, um, formally, in lectures, in practice, in simulation. Um, and uh, and we think that's important because that is the the recognized you know flip side of of work hour regulations. Um, and then we went about it like any other you know quality improvement project. We went to a night float system. We use a night float system the same way David does. Um, and we went to it a few, uh, you know several years ago. But it's not a static thing. Um, it changes all the time. We, it, just like any PDSA study cycle, we, we make some plans, we, we implement it, we look at what it's doing to work hours, um, and then we make changes. And then we plan and we look at the results of those changes. And our night float system has evolved considerably uh, over the years, both in response to clinical needs as well as to response to the new, uh, the new work hour rule. So we have eliminated all of our 24-hour shifts. Um, it took some planning and changing, um, but over the past, we've made a lot of changes to it. We, we've changed the times of sign-in and sign-out. We've changed the scheduled length of the shifts. We've changed some of the composite of who's actually on the night flow. Um, we're not afraid to change things. We're not, we're not afraid to, to, to change things up, um, and we're continually tweaking it and improving it and, and trying to, to you know, come up with something that both satisfies work hours requirements, but more importantly, um, provides, uh, you know, good patient care. So that's a, I can go through the details later, but that's sort uh, of a okay. overall summary. Appreciate that. Uh, so Jim Whiting at Maine Medical Center. Again, it's WIHI and I'm Madge Kaplan. Uh, you heard before from Chris Landrigan, David Sweet. That was Jim Whiting. And now we're going to um, bring Don Goldman in. Don is uh, working his way through maybe the last stages of a cold. And uh, oops, we've got some uh, slides, I guess, that uh, Chris uh, also Landrigan just shared with us. And we'll be happy to share those two. So I'm going to bring Don in first, and then Chris, you can jump in, which is, so when you hear about these two programs that are in the midst of change, and perhaps others that you're familiar with, 
What jumps out as maybe some critical components of residency redesign uh, to meet Obviously, what's going on here is that a lot of goals are being met. Yes, compliance at some level, but then a whole set of other things uh, that have to do with continuity, et cetera. So, Don, if that's not too broad, jump in. No, that that's great. <laughs> that's great. And as usual, I will have observations <laughs> without solutions. Uh, I do think that there's a inherent problem, a potential problem, in looking at this as a residency problem. Uh, and not a uh, institutional problem or a health system uh, problem. Uh, that said, you have to start somewhere. It is reasonable to start with an operations management approach to scheduling residents. Uh, that's what I'm hearing from these successful programs. It was a disciplined way using operations management principles to try and come up with a rational uh, residency rotation scheme within the rules. And you could argue that uh, emergency departments trying to improve efficiency and flow and match capacity to demand would use similar principles to make sure that they were operating safely within their parameters. Uh, Here are the the questions this raises for me. It it seems that there uh, is a need in this process to ensure that the residents uh, are uh, competent in terms of handoffs and situational awareness. Uh, A new resident just coming on board or rotating in from another institution uh, may or may not have the competency and the ability to gauge the situation that will permit uh, him or her to uh, orchestrate uh, a uh, useful handoff, a safe handoff. Uh, Secondly, the handoff process itself uh, has to be well designed and I know that some of the people on the call are working hard on uh, creating uh, handoff uh, mechanisms that will be safe and provide the information that's needed to the person receiving the handoff, but that's really something I don't think we've figured out uh, as well as we need to uh, quite yet. I I think as long as we threw warm bodies at the problem and could rotate residents until they dropped, uh, handing off information wasn't nearly as important as it is uh, now. Uh, That said, uh, too much focus, at least I've seen too much focus, on the handoffs among residents. Uh, You know, this is a multidisciplinary care team we're dealing with here, and the scheduling of nurses and other care providers and uh, residents and physicians is very asynchronous, very hard to manage interdisciplinary education, let alone interdisciplinary care, at the point of care. So, Uh, I would urge the people who are uh, providing a new architecture here to think about it as an interdisciplinary process, not a resident uh, process alone. And and finally, I was struck by the uh, mention of a culture of safety in which residents could report without fear of retribution uh, work hours issues. I would say that it's not just work hours issues, it's abuse of power issues, it's unsafe situation issues, it's disruptive physician and nurse issues. There is a whole spectrum of problems that fall under the culture safety rubric where anybody, not just the resident, has to be able to speak up and to have a safe haven where they can speak without necessarily uh, worrying about the wrath of the very disruptive physician that they seek to report. So a lot of things to consider. I probably teed up too many. 
That's good. Uh, but the extent to which we regard this as a real systems problem, not a residency problem, I, I think will do better. Don, thank you. This is why we want you here uh, to tee up uh, good stuff because, you know, we'll, we weave in, you know, there is some continuity between all these programs and I think what's being learned with this residency work hopefully is going to benefit other areas of improvement throughout healthcare and vice versa. Chris, any comments uh, also sort of from that, you know, sort of standing back and sort of thinking about uh, these programs and others you're aware of and kind of what stands out? Sure. So just um, just briefly, I, I would echo some of the things that, that uh, Don has said and then just add a, a bit of a different spin to it. So first of all, I mean, particularly with respect to the issue of work hours and sleep deprivation, I completely agree that this is not exclusively a resident issue. There certainly is a, a, is a growing body of literature for nurses in particular that when they work shifts that, that are longer than, than 12 or, or 13 hours, and they begin to see these types of decrements in performance, increased errors, increased occupational injuries, and so forth as well, very similar to the residents. And in fact, although it's, it's early on yet, there's beginning to be a bit of literature looking at attending uh, positions as well that, that at least at its first glance um, echoes some of the same themes. So I think that you, you know the bottom line from a sleep deprivation and scheduling standpoint is this is about human biology and human performance, and it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what your level of experience is or... Um, or, or what your specific job role is. That said, I also agree with the even larger point that as you're making these types of changes, although in many cases it's work hours that become the lever for change, the reality is that as you're changing this, you're changing a whole host of things within an organization that are incredibly complicated and not, they're not easy to, to balance well. I'm a strong believer that reducing work hours is, is well um, demonstrated by the, by the evidence to be an essential thing, but changing work hours alone without considering some of these infrastructural elements is a recipe for failure. And I think programs that, that try strictly to adhere to the rules but don't think about some of the more complex issues that Jim in particular brought up and that Don was hinting at as well, um, I, I think are not going to succeed well. And so I really do think that this is a, it's a balancing game. It's a question of adhering to the best science that we have available to us, but doing it intelligently and also doing it in a flexible way where um, there's an initial effort, just as Jim said, put forth to make a change, and then you look critically at that and continue to refine and improve as time goes by to get something ultimately that works. Okay. All right. Thank you. Uh, good Good point. All right. Let me uh, ask, uh, I'll bring David back in here. Um, David, you know, you, um, you're you at a, what's, what's neat, I think, about all of you here is that you're sort of all looking at this from, you know, different, very practical, very uh, systematic, and also sort of bold aims kinds of ways. One of the things, David, feel free to comment on anything that's just been said, uh, but there were a couple of points uh, that you provided me when we were planning this about some sort of um, key kinds of issues for embracing change, which I suspect a lot of people who've joined today would really uh, love to hear more about. Yeah, I, I think clearly I agree with all the points that have been brought up so far, and, and I think Jim's point of using PDSA cycles to implement change is extremely important. And as Chris and Don said, you can't simply just put in hours. If you put in the hours alone, you're going to end up with other problems coming up, and it will be just a disaster. In, in terms of some successes, I think the, the continuity and handoffs is really very important. And one of the things that we found through our iterative process with our general medicine teams was that by structuring the call the way we did, we end up with much better sign-outs even than we had in the past. 
in the first 24 hours that a patient is in the hospital here on our general medicine teams, at least 12 hours and generally almost 24 hours, the handoffs are all within one team. They're all within one team, and that brings you back almost to the days that, that some of us trained in, in which you had four members of the team and one person was there every night. So you always hand it off within the team. We don't quite get to that point with with our patients every night, but at least in that first day, the most critical time of the person's admission, we have handoffs within the team. And what that does, what we found that does, is it results in a lot of feedback to the individuals that are doing the handing off and that are receiving the handoffs. So if you have a problem with a handoff, you identify it, you learn from it, and you're gonna get better and better with the handoffs. We've we've studied the number of handoffs that go on and how these how these take place. And we found, for instance, one of our residents did a study that showed that approximately sixty percent of our general medicine floor calls at night are truly from our resident teams. The others are rapid response. But of the ones that come from a general medicine team, more than half have excellent sign-outs, sign-outs that result uh, in the resident that's on call at night knowing what to expect and getting information advanced. And the other, probably 40%, are calls that are completely unexpected, a rash developed, something of that sort. The person has a headache completely different from the problem that came in for things of that sort. So we think the continuity of handoffs has really been enhanced with some of our changes. That we've I'll stop at that. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. So that's uh, David Sweet and David Sweet and Jim Whiting and Chris Landrigan and Don Goldman and myself, Magic Kaplan. We're trying to uh, frame uh, some possibilities here with residency training uh, and perhaps one of the things we can get into when we uh, also start to now open things up for your comments and questions is whether these programs, Jim's and David's and others perhaps uh, kind of on maybe the sharp end of some innovations are well-situated for the new rules that go into effect uh, this summer, uh, which will uh, certainly affect uh, first-year residents especially, um, but lots of other things as well having to do with supervision, et cetera. So, Jesse, why don't you remind everybody about chat uh, that's where you get to kind of weigh in with your questions and comments. We tried to set the table here for you. Uh, feel free now to um, tell us what's on your mind, and uh, I have some questions in the offing as well. Jesse. So for everyone to chat in their questions, go into the bottom right-hand corner into that chat window and pick all participants from the Send To menu. That'll make sure that everyone on our program is able to see your questions as they come in, and Madge and our dr- guests can address them. Uh, I had one that came in ahead of time that's fairly interesting from Natarajan Marugasan. Uh, as residents' pay will be subject to income taxes, work versus learning, are they eligible for overtime and should we try and balance safety and cost to optimize our system rather than minimize one at the cost of another? Fairly oh. uh, <laughs> lengthy question, but I, I think it's a good point to bring up. That's why I have Jesse here for these <laughs> hard balls he throws in. All right, so we're talking about uh, taxes. I don't know. I'm going to just, uh, anyone who feels like weighing in, I see Don has backed up his chair here. <laughs> but um, uh, Chris, uh, Jim, or David, uh, any anything having to do uh, with sort of the brass tax here of hours, overtime, taxes, etc.? I don't think we have 
anything remotely related. If not, we can move on. I appreciate the question. Uh, Maybe just a little bit more uh, burrowed into some things. Anybody? Well, I'd I just say, you know, that, that as pro- professionals, we're, we generally are paid by salary, and, you know, it's, it's not much different than when we're looking at, at some of our staff. There are certain positions that are paid hourly, and those positions are subject to overtime, and there are other positions that are that are paid by salary. And, um, it, you know, it, we, we just because we put a limit on something, that doesn't mean we're still paying uh, an hourly. We're... we're you know, you're you're there to get the the job done, and you're given a salary for your performance, and uh, not necessarily based on the hours. And I don't think putting an hourly limit changes that. Okay, thank you very much, Jim. All right, a couple of really interesting questions have been ch- chatted in. Uh, Chris, maybe we'll uh, throw this out to you or anyone really. How much data are out there comparing quality of care and patient safety before and after the 2003 changes? Uh, or data comparing quality safety with 30-hour shifts versus 16-hour shifts. Uh, any anyone on that one? Sure, this is Chris. I can I can answer that. So okay. There have there have been a, a series of studies that have looked at what the effects of the 2003 ACGME standards were on mortality, uh, morbidity, rates of complications, and and so forth. Um, some of them using very large databases, for example, the Medicare database, to look at you know millions of patients across the country and, and to try to figure out whether there was any real impact in teaching hospitals. And, and the bottom line is, if there was any impact, it looks like it was pretty minimal. Um, but the interesting thing about the 2003 changes is that if you really look at them objectively, which often I think doesn't quite jive with people's personal experiences with it, since I think it did, you know, even those relatively modest changes back in 2003 did cause quite um, a bit of, I think, personal angst and difficulty for individual program directors trying to comply with the new rules. The reality is those, those rules didn't, for most programs at least, with the exception of some of the surgical programs, lead to very substantive changes in actual hours or actual sleep that residents obtain. And so not having really very substantively affected the so-called predictor variable, you wouldn't really expect it to affect the more downstream outcome. Those uh, studies stand in pretty sharp contrast to the studies that have compared 30-hour shift systems with systems that have limited uh, hours to 16 or thereabouts. And those have, as a group, um, uh, very much shown that, that you see improvements in patient safety and quality outcomes when you reduce from a 30-hour shift limit to a 16-hour shift limit. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Uh, David, anything that you've been doing to sort of um, kind of measure any, anything in this respect in terms of quality and safety? So we've, we've made some other changes in the program with our entry into the RRC Medicine's EIP project. One of them was to use a team-based approach to care for our general medicine teams. We don't have solid information from before the changes were implemented, but we do have data that shows our resident patients are actually in the hospital for a shorter amount of time, a lower length of stay, than similarly ill private patients uh-huh. with severity adjustment done from elsewhere. So at least the patients are not in the hospital as long, and they also have a lower 30-day readmission rate. So we think that's beneficial. But whether that's from the 16-hour change, right. our team-based approach to care, any number of things, 
I can't say. Right. And also uh, all, all the broader changes that Don Goldman was talking about. Somebody is asking for about some of the specific things uh, in the ACGME rules. I had We did have some scrolling slides before to remind everybody of some of the most high-level changes, but if you go to the ACGME website, and we also have that on a resource document we'll post to our archive page, it's very clearly laid out, and there's this really nifty comparison uh, chart. Jim Whiting, maybe a question for you, and then David as well, if, if you want to weigh in. Somebody is asking, with the changes, are you relying more on mid-level providers? Yes. Um, we, we have uh, um, you know, some places have an army of preliminary uh, residents and interns. We have an army of nurse practitioners. Uh, we have 20 nurse practitioners. Um, they um, work at all hours of day, nights, and weekends, and there's no way in the world that we could um, be compliant without them. And take care and take and take care of patients. Okay, David. Uh, we did not add mid-level providers at SUMA as we made the changes in the hours for the residents, but um, I will say our recruiting for residency improved slightly. So we have about I think it's about five percent more resident months than we used to have. Okay, great. Thank you. One question, and it's interesting because, uh, as David described earlier, with some special funding that allowed some or helped with some of the innovation uh, work there, um, somebody is asking whether or not ACGME is in and of itself uh, giving either recommendations or promoting any particular models uh, that would help people uh, sort of implement all the new rules changes. Anyone familiar with uh, anything in that score? Uh, I am not. Okay. Uh, All right. Well, that's something. That's a good question. I know we have somebody from A. Oh, Don has raised his hand. Don. Well, the one thing I do know about ACGME's uh, approach to this is that uh, in the process of uh, looking for compliance, uh, the current attitude is we don't know the best way to do this. And an important part of ACGME's plan is to learn from the organizations that they uh, visit. So when we, when we see creative plans such as the one we've heard about today, uh, the idea is to find out where they are, who's doing them, and how they can be spread and tested under other contexts. Okay, thanks, Don. Uh, there um, are some people, I believe, from ACGME who may have joined, and if they feel like chatting in uh, some information or any thoughts, we welcome that. Uh, somebody is asking, uh, we'll maybe go back just for a second to the whole mid-level provider. This is somewhat of an age-old question, which is uh, sort of how to go about that with perhaps without reducing somebody is saying the resident footprint, uh, you know, just to what degree this, this works out sort of harmoniously. Um, Jim? Um, well, especially if I'm looking at, at one of them, you know, is that yeah. concerned about reducing the resident footprint and how to avoid marginalizing the resident in day-to-day -day patient care. And um, that's, a, that's a, a great question we've struggled with. And we have uh, specific, I, can, I don't know that we've solved it, but I'll say some things we specifically haven't done um, because of that worry. One thing we haven't done is created nurse practitioner-only services. We've tried to integrate the nurse practitioner um, into the services that we have. And we've actually found that in certain situations that's been more successful because the nurse practitioner, so for example, nurse practitioner on the oncology services have been able to develop um, a specific expertise 
um, and uh, and uh, advance their own uh, continuing education, um, and so that's that's been useful. Um, we actually um, have um, several of the nurse practitioners who've done first assist courses and and go in the operating room as well, um, which sometimes does. Uh, produce some conflict um, in terms of if if a you know a nurse a nurse practitioner want now they're first assisting where the resident is is, is getting you know graduated experience in the case, but nonetheless if you hit a, a patch where cases might be slow at some point you know um, or you have an attending who you know is is less easy to work with than others you know should the nurse practitioner only get that. Um, you know, it's, it's a constant issue. It requires constant communication. It requires, um, you know, trying to uh, integrate the nurse practitioners um, into your daily rounding schedule. And, and they have different schedules than the residents because they're not working uh, 80 hours. You know, they're but they're working 40 hours. Um, it's a uh, so. Mm-hmm. I don't have any great things other than to say that we we've been impressed that integrating them into the services is is uh, been more successful than trying to develop services of their own. Quick follow up: Somebody is asking whether uh, there has been a lot of tracking of associated costs uh, in terms of the mid-level use. And for us, we haven't yeah. added mid-level, so it hasn't been. This is David Sumer. Yeah. It hasn't been a problem. But I, I will say. The residents now see a few more patients than they used to. See. I think they're able to because they're a little bit more well rested. Uh huh. Do, do you mean on a national basis? Or well, do you mean yeah. On a, on a local, yeah. I mean, local, yeah. regionally, yeah, they're more expensive than residents. That's for sure. Right. Right. Um, and is that being? Know. I don't know. Maybe we can find out whether that's being looked at as, as well. Um, I would like to, so thank, thanks both of you. Um, Chris, I'm curious whether or not uh, you feel, um, you're the one who kind of led me to uh, David and, and Jim, and you said, you know, you're, you're kind of tracking some of the other uh, programs and program directors. Do you think uh, residency programs are kind of well prepared uh, for the rules that are going into effect in July? Well, I think it's a big, um, you know, it's a big mishmash out there. I think that there are many programs I know about who have been thinking about these changes, at least in some form or another, for a long time now. And the announcement by the ACGME that it was going to change the standards for for interns didn't come as a shock, and I think they were pretty well prepared to do it. But I think there certainly are a lot of programs out there, um, you you know, who are caught a little bit off guard by this and and probably are struggling more. But I I guess I don't have a great sense, personally, of, of... who's in each camp. David, what do you think uh, in terms of as you, you would be the one program everyone would say uh, you're, you're kind of, what are going to still be some further things that you're going to have to work on? Uh, uh, there's some different issues here regarding supervision and maybe I'll then sort of open up some issues about education, which I know is, is one of the disjunctures that we had talked about in planning today. Yeah, we've had to make a few changes to get ready for July, but we feel very fortunate that the changes we put in were done over about three years. I, I would have a great deal of difficulty imagining how we could do enough PDSA cycles in six months or nine months to get ready to do this. It would be very hard. Um, I, I think I think the changes we've made or that we're making now would include we're going to start to worry about duty hours. We haven't worried about them in the SUMA Medicine Program for several years because we were so far under the rules that we didn't have to think we were going to violate them. We did make a change to go to a 15-hour limit for our grad ones 
beginning December 1st, and we're seeing how that's working because we know whatever time we schedule residents to be on duty, they're going to stay a little bit longer. So even our 16-hour plan, on average, if somebody was scheduled for 16 and stayed longer, they'd stay 17, 17 and a quarter. So we, we know that we have to go a little bit below the 16 in order to stay within the rules. And we also are going to have to spend some time now monitoring that, which we weren't really monitoring very closely before. We just knew we were, we were well under. We also have to avoid going beyond the six-day limit. We, we wouldn't schedule residents beyond six nights in a row, but there were times that residents would make changes in the scheduled trades in order to let their personal life work a little better. And now we've had to say, no, that's, that's not allowed anymore. They can go six nights in Mm-hmm. Okay, thanks, David. Jim, this uh, question, I think, has your name on it. I'm an anesthesiologist. Sally writes, how does one talk to the surgeon who thinks it's okay to do all his elective cases when he's been up all night with an emergency case? <laughs> I, I guess that means the surgical resident, by the way, but anyway. <laughs> no, I, I think he probably means an attending surgeon. Attending, uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, that's a that's a that's a great uh, a great question. Um, uh, if you don't have enough self awareness to know really truly deeply in your heart that you're not that you're not going to be as as good, then then you're you can talk to your blue in the face. Um, I would you know people physicians um, don't they don't respond immediately they do respond to data so I would I would point them first to data. Um, I'd appeal to his emotional side as well and say, you know, is this really, if it was your son, your wife, do you really think you're in in the condition? Now, the fact of the matter is maybe the surgeon does. Um, You know, short of that, there's lots of uh, nice little neurocognitive tests you can go online and you can uh, take yourself and and you'll you'll be um, pretty impressed. Um, If you haven't done it after being up all night, uh, you should try it. Um, You won't score anywhere near as well as you... uh, as you'll score when you're awake, um, but this is this is what Don means about that when he's talking about you know the, the ability to speak up. Um, I think you just have to start. You just have to start speaking up. You have to you have to try and start getting a conversation going. Uh, it may not work the first time, but uh, you just you just got to keep hammering at it. Thanks, Jim. Don, uh, maybe I will bring you back here. When we were, uh, some of my earliest conversations in trying to shape this WIHI, uh, one with Don and Chris, and we talked about sort of one of the, maybe not so much the elephant in the room, but one of the underlying issues here is just the way in which education and training and sort of the whole education system for residents didn't line up nicely with a lot of the work hour changes, uh, no matter how lofty the goals and aims. And, um, can we just at least uh, ping that issue, starting with you, Don, and sort of how we're going to sort of get these things to line up better? Yeah, so uh, people get really upset when I say I'm old, and when I was uh, in training, I was on every other night, and I handed my service off to the other person who was on every other night, and I saw hundreds and hundreds of patients and knew everything about them and heard them pass gas in the middle of the night in an open ward. And, you know, that, that may be uh, old-fashioned and obviously was unsafe, but I'll tell you, I learned like a demon, and I remember most of those patients quite well, and they certainly knew me. I, this is a different era, and I'm not in any way implying we ought to go back to that, but we ought to be honest 
about what was lost when we progressed. And patients uh, used to stay for two, three weeks. Now they stay for uh, two to three days or less. Uh, we used to know our patients intimately. Now we know them as part of a team uh, that, uh, and only for a few hours at a time. These are real tangible losses, and what we need to replace them with uh, is an understanding that there are humanistic values of observation and connection that can be achieved in a shorter period of time, that there are virtues in learning and working together as a team and not as a uh, solo hero, that what we uh, lose uh, by being up all night and knowing our patients is now uh, gained through better access to decision support and electronic uh, uh, content that we can't remember everything anyway these days because medicine's infinitely more complex than it was. But, but I think we have to be very explicit in referencing what was a virtue in an old, antiquated, unsafe system and what will be lost if we don't design intelligently to replace it with something new and better. Chris? Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, it's, it's complex. I think these changes are hard, and I think that the system has changed enormously over the past 30 years. And I think that medical education has not kept pace with the realities of the changing um, workplace in the, in the hospital. It certainly is no longer the case that an individual provider is, is operating um, in direct contact with the patient in, in a vacuum. I mean, I, I'm not sure that that was ever entirely true, but it's certainly not true now, where we have massively complex teams who are caring for patients, and yet... The vast majority of our medical education, both at the undergraduate and at the residency level, is still about how do you as an individual learn information about a patient and then apply that to the care of that patient. There's, there's far too little focus on teamwork, on how we interact with one another, on understanding some of these systemic factors that we know from other industries and other experiences are, are incredibly important in driving the quality of the care that we provide. And so I do think we need to move into a new era where we focus on those things. And only by doing so well are we going to get to a place where we can effectively and safely implement these types of work hour changes that we know are necessary. Great. I guess uh, we're, we're getting, we're not quite there, but we're getting slowly to the top of the hour. I have a question for you, David. As you look across the SUMA health system, what, in what ways does the work that's going on there with residency, if you were to point out sort of any other improvement work that's going on or any high-level reform initiatives right now, reducing readmissions, that kind of thing, where do you see some of the natural linkages between what's going on with residency training and other work in the system? Well, I think it is important to, to gather data about the outcomes of patients, and that's something we've been, been pretty weak in in the past, and we're just beginning to gather more and more data. For instance, the information about the reduced readmissions, the reduced length of stay, uh, that's very important to be able to, to give that data back to the residents, back to the entire team. And as you get that data, you can try to make further changes, PDSA cycles, as Jim referred to earlier, to make further changes, further improvements keep the good things, throw out the things that don't work because you know, we're all in an era where it's push, 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 try to get things better, better, better. So we're trying to just gather data. I think that's a very important thing right now, we're gathering data and lots of specific data on the patients. 
Thank you. Chris, somebody quickly is asking, they're looking for the repository on all of this information, on research and uh, kind of what we're uh, – you've, you've got quite a, a, a trail of your own articles and whatever. Do you have a suggestion of sort of where is some of this collated in any really wonderful places where people can begin to sort of dive into stuff if, if data can help also per- persuade <laughs> Sure. So I think probably the the best, most rigorous, high-quality collection of this information that exists was the Institute of Medicine report that came out at the beginning of 2009 on residency work hours, where over the course of a year they, you know, heard testimony from experts from across disciplines and did an incredibly thorough literature review where they pulled all this information together. And so I think, you know, it's a, it's a couple hundred, few hundred page read. It's not um, it's not simple stuff, but it's, there's a, there's just a wealth of information in there for somebody who really wants to dive into this in depth. Okay, that's probably good, and I I think some good <coughs> excuse me search tools. Excuse me. Uh, again, uh, search and keyword things. Oh, look at Jesse. Jesse McCall is very fast, and, and he uh, put up a link that's about six lines long, but it will get you there as a hyperlink. I want to just say very, very quickly that if you go to IHI.org right now, there are a couple programs that are coming up uh, that we, we really hope have some linkage to the changes in residency training because part of what we're looking for are more, uh, better patient care and more engaged physicians, perhaps future improvers. Um, so there were two programs, Achieving Clinical Integration Through Highly Engaged Physicians and a very popular Science of Improvement program coming up all in March. So check out IHI.org for those. All right. I want to uh, – maybe just some sort of last words here. Uh, we, you know, as we try to do on WHI, we sort of try and tee up some stuff, bring some engaging ideas forward. Uh, not the full deal by any stretch. Lots of details. I'm sure any of these people would be willing to uh, give you more specifics. And, you know, they're, they're all passionate about this work. Uh, but I'm going to go around the horn really fast. So, David, any parting words from you today? I think you just have to look at things, figure out ways to make changes, and then try to do it. Try, 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 and eventually something will come up that works well. Okay. All right. Well, you're in the trenches there, so um, we appreciate that. Jim Whiting? Uh, this is the tip of the iceberg. It's it's uh, it's all about making the culture change, and, and it's all about the patient. All right. Chris? I would just um, echo something that Don mentioned very early that we hadn't spent too much time on. Just think very hard about the handoff issue, too, as these types of changes are made. I think it's really important, and there certainly are some good models out there for how to do it that I'd be glad to share with folks. Okay. All right. Chris Landrigan, and he is uh, a fountain of info, and uh, if you want to follow up with him, uh, you can, if you don't know how to, uh, on your own, you can do that certainly uh, through info at IHI.org, and that will get passed to me. Don Goldman. Yes, uh, I, I agree it's only the tip of the iceberg, but it's, it's really only the tippy-tippy tip of the iceberg because there's an entire revolution coming in the way in which we evaluate residents for their competency and uh, performance improvement and other really critical areas. And I personally think that eventually the whole uh, CMS, Medicare uh, payment for residency programs is going to be at risk unless we can demonstrate that residents emerge from our programs with uh, true competency and ability to perform in a different way. And, and uh, if we focus on the residents' work hours uh, issue alone, uh, we're going to be really having our heads 
head in the sand. All right. So that's kind of got to be, in some sense, we got to get that done. Sounds like I, I can hear a new program idea coming. Uh, maybe we'll we'll marinate on that for, uh, for a few months here. All right. A big thank you to David Sweet, Jim Whiting, Chris Landrigan, Don Goldman. Uh, I am so grateful if you knew the amount of time all of these folks put into helping me plan today. And uh, we hoped that we brought you something that you can kind of run with. Feel free to ask us more information if you need it, info at IHI.org. Remember, when you log off the program today, we'll ask you, do you want to download all kinds of things that we flew up here, slides and such? Uh, Please go ahead and do that. There's also a nifty survey. We'd love to know what you thought of today's program and how we can improve it. Next up on WIHI, very quickly, February 10th, a legible prescription for health care. I am thrilled. Dr. Pauline Chen, who's a columnist for the New York Times, she's got the doctor and patient column, also the author of a book called Final Exam. She's going to be my guest. So uh, start thinking of what you've uh, been reading when you've read her, uh, what you've been thinking about when you've read her column, and uh, bring your questions and comments for her. She's very excited about that as well. By tomorrow morning or even late today on the snowy day in Boston, we'll have uh, some stuff up there, the archive of today's show, a nice resource document, uh, further information. And you can also, don't forget, download the chat uh, when you download the slides today. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Vicki Minden. We've got music that opens and closes WIHI in their original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Sapasoa on piano. And it's my privilege, it always is, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Stay warm if you're in winter climates. Good day.